Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, Preaching was never something I thought I'd, I'd end up doing. I, I, as Albert mentioned, I do apologetics work, and I kind of tend to have my, my head in the books and, and my head in the Word a lot, and I don't really do this kind of speaking. My speaking tends to be more academically oriented. But fear not, I'm going to avoid that kind of talking today. Um, we're gonna, I usually talk about historical context, and I find that very important for interpreting Scripture. But uh, today we're going to, for the most part, Derive everything from the word, and uh, and I hope that that shows that this text needs nothing more than what God gave us for us to understand it. There is some kind of contextualization that is a little bit helpful, though. <clears throat> Psalm 121 is part of a group of psalms from Psalm 120 to 134, known as songs of ascent, or sometimes the the individual psalm is called the song of ascents. And typically, scholars and commentators have believed that these psalms would have been sung by pilgrims, making their way up the road toward Jerusalem on a pilgrimage for one of the feasts, say the Feast of Tabernacles, or Passover, or the Pentecost. And these were the kinds of songs these pilgrims and sojourners would sing as a means of encouragement while on the road. I can imagine the psalmist seeing the mountains around Jerusalem, maybe Mount Zion itself, as John spoke about last week there, and, and immediately praying uh, a prayer like this psalm. There are other, other idiosyncratic theories that some scholars have come up with, but I think thinking of this as a, journey or a journeyman's uh, psalm or traveler's psalm is, uh, is good enough for us today, uh, and I think there's a lot to support that idea anyway. Uh, and as that is the case, as we go through the psalm, I'd like us to think about our own life journeys and think about life as a journey. And because that is the case, I figured I would start with a bit of my own journey here. Beautiful, isn't it? Uh, Some of you might know this. Many of you probably don't. Back in 2019, my mother passed away. And then, spring of 2021, one of my brothers passed away. I had three older brothers, now I have two. And this was obviously a really, really, really hard time for me and my family. And our father, he's getting up in age, and we figured after my brother passed away, who was living at at home at the time, uh, it wouldn't be a good idea to leave dad living alone. So we had a family discussion, and we all agreed that my dad would move move in with my oldest brother, who was retiring from the army and moving to New Brunswick. So 
that summer, summer 2021, we packed up dad in the old house that we grew up in. We grew up in a small townhouse in, in Scarborough that was like a, a metro housing kind of uh, subsidized housing unit. House we all knew and loved for 40 years. We packed up and uh, we moved to my brother's place, which was then near Barrie, and then all the way out to a little village called Gemsag in New Brunswick. And this picture was taken while I was on a trip there last month. A friend of the family, my dad's best friend since 1968, um, was driving out there, so I, I tagged along for the trip, and on the way back, we, we took this photo. This picture, I believe, is the St. John River somewhere near the border uh, between uh, Quebec and New Brunswick. And I remember very distinctly taking this picture because if you note this ominous storm cloud here, as I was preparing for the sermon, I came across this photo and immediately thought, wow, that's perfect. I can imagine the guy who wrote Psalm 121, the psalmist, looking up and seeing a storm like that over the mountains and going, whew, God, God, please save me from danger. You know, and, and asking all these questions about, about who he's going to turn to when he, he, um, he needs help and he wants protection. I can tell you, when we were driving into that storm, I was praying. I was praying because it was, it was a bad one. But I have to say, through all of that, through losing my family through death and losing my family now from separation also, Psalms like 121 have been immensely helpful. They've been immensely encouraging, and they've been a huge and great reminder to turn to God when I need help. And to turn to God both in good times and in bad times. So that's my journey, and I hope while we're going through this, you think about your journey in life as we move forward. So let's look at our plan for today. A bit of a roadmap. First, we're going to start with explaining the psalm. We're going to kind of go through it in some, something of an expository fashion, verse by verse, or two verses at a time, actually. And as we go through, I'm going to point out a few things that I think are really, really important and things that I think we should focus on. <clears throat> and hopefully, by the end of that, I'll have been able to build a question, build a case that will lead us to this big question of the day. And I think um, it might be obvious what that question is, but we'll get to that when we get to that. And finally, I want to look at some examples. Have us look at some examples of what it looks like to seek the Lord, for help. So let's dive into this. This psalm is typically thought of as being structured in two parts. Verses 1 and 2 are in the first person, and verses 3 through 8 are in the second person. Some scholars have thought that this had something to do with maybe there were multiple choirs or multiple groups singing. The first group would sing the first couple of verses, and the rest would sing the rest of it. And really what we have happening is the first couple of verses we have the psalmist asking a question and then answering his question. And bear in mind that answer is not just an answer. It's a confession. The psalmist is setting us a great example. He's not just saying, oh, my help comes from God. He's confessing that he turns to the Lord for help. And verses 3 through 8 he goes on to describe that God and tell us what that God is like. And I hope as we go through the, 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 the text here, 
we'll kind of draw that out of the psalm. So let's look at the first two verses. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? Pretty straightforward. My help comes from the Lord. And here's a huge, huge hint. Who made heaven and earth. So this guy's not just confessing that his help comes from God. He's confessing that his help comes from an amazingly powerful God who created, a creator God, who created the heavens and the earth. So he's not just seeking some lowly God, the God that might have been worshipped on the high places in those days, in antiquity. This is a guy who's creating, who's, who's, who's turning to the creator, the God. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. There's something really interesting going on here. So here's where the big switch happens. We go from the guy telling us what kind of God he worships to starting to describe what that God is like, his actions, his character. And I'm going to do something that's actually really simple, something we can all do. So I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. But if you use the ESV, which is what we normally use here, just use the concordances that they have, the little notes in their own Bible. And if you want to pull them out while you're, while you're going through this, it's all we need. It's, it's all in there. It's all we need to, to draw this out. So they point to Isaiah 27, verses 2 to 3. And in that text, we have God, through Isaiah, talking about Israel as if it were a vineyard, and he was the vineyard keeper. And he says, I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. Again, we're getting a bigger picture of who God is. This is not some kind of God who just throws stuff out there and says, go have fun. This is a loving God, a nurturing God, a God who takes care of us. The psalmist is pointing to someone very, very special here. Verse 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. There's also something really interesting here. If we fast forward all the way to Revelation 7, verses 14 to 17, at this point in the text, John is in his vision, and he's in heaven. And he's speaking with an elder. And he's asking the elder about a group of people he sees. And the elder's response is, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And get this. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Think about he who sits on the throne here. They will no longer hunger nor thirst, 
nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, John's vision is putting the psalmist's words and this psalm into much greater perspective. God will keep his people not just from the dangers of the scorching sun, in other words, natural dangers, but also through the sun, because he is the sun and the sun is him, God takes on the role of total savior. So we have a really powerful God. We've got a loving, tender God, caring God, a sustaining God, and we have a saving God. Verses 7 and 8. The Lord will protect you from evil, and he will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. When we look at verse 7, I immediately think of the last line of the Lord's Prayer. And deliver us from evil. The psalmist confirms what Jesus told us to pray for. And Jesus is confirming what the psalmist is saying God will do for us. There's total concordance here. It's incredible. Think about what's going on here. Only in eight verses, we're building up this huge idea of God. And think about it. From this time forth and forever. We now have mention of an eternal God. If the God existed forever going forward, he must exist forever going back. All of this, what the psalmist is giving us here, is what I like to call basic God stuff. Real simple. He's giving us the essential theology regarding the creator of the universe, our God. And from this, this is what we know about God. He's an extremely powerful creator who himself must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial because he created the universe, space, time, and matter. He must be a personal God for willingly creating a suitable universe and planet for us, as well as creating us. And finally, he's a loving, protecting, and sustaining God. And I would add to that, he's an eternal God. So the psalmist isn't just talking about who he turns to. He's not just confessing to us who he turns to from help. He's giving us an essential theology for the God who he turns to. He's, just, he's not just saying, I turn to God and leaving at that. He's telling us who God is. And I think what a lot of this points to, ultimately, is that we have a Savior God. You see, there, there's something also that's interesting going on. I said I wouldn't historically contextualize too much. Well, I'm going to do it a little bit. In the ancient Near East, the concept of a Savior was not the same, generally speaking, across 
most cultures as we think of a Savior in the Christian messianic sense. A Savior would have been an immediate thing. Someone who's about to stop an enemy from attacking you. Someone who is stopping an enemy from attacking you. A Savior that conceptually is an immediate thing. So this is in its own context what we can see the psalmist thinking of. God is saving him then and there and, and will be his immediate Savior. But when we look at the language that's used, when we look at the things the Savior says about God, God is the one who helps us, verse 2. God is our keeper, verses 3 to 5. God is our protector, verse 7. God is our guard or guardian, verse 8. I think that all of these words can quite reasonably be swapped out with the word Savior or save. God saves us. He is our Savior. So if we look at this in light of the gospel, whether he realized it or not, because Jesus is God and God is the Son, the psalmist was actually talking about Jesus. Didn't know it. We know it because we have the gospel. God was so great to give us his mercy and to give us his Son. But in talking about God as the Savior, because Jesus is God, the psalmist was actually talking about the Messiah. He just didn't know it. But all of this is meant to do, all of this theology, all of this Christology, the whole point of this is to bring us to the core of the psalm. What I like to call the big question of the day, or the big question. And if we think about who God is, this description of God we get from Psalm 121, and knowing now that he's really talking about Christ, the Savior. When he says, my help comes from the Lord, he's really saying my help comes from Christ. So the big question is the same question he asked. Who do you turn to when you need help? Put another way, from where shall your help come? Ask yourself, from where shall my help come? Or more succinctly, who's your savior? Who is your savior? Imagine, think about what you're going through in your life, the struggles you're going through, you've been through, maybe some problems you're going through now. Who's your savior? Who are you turning to? Well, we know that there are many examples that we can point to in our lives and in Scripture of people turning to the Savior. And I'd like to draw out some of those examples. And I would like to focus on covenant people to draw out those examples from. 
We are part of the new covenant. We are covenant people. So I thought it would be fitting for us to do a few case studies, to look at examples from new covenant people in order to see what it looks like to seek help from the Lord. Matthew 14, 22 to 33. Peter walks on water. Now immediately you might think, what is wrong with you, man? This is an example of a lack of faith. That's why the guy was sinking. You know, dude didn't have enough faith, and Jesus even went so far as to scold him and say, you have little faith. In fact, he, scold, he scolded everyone in that boat at one point in time. But I think this example redeems itself. Verses 30 and 31. Once Peter starts sinking, what does he do? He immediately cried out, Lord, help me. So he didn't have enough faith to believe that he could walk on water. But at least he had enough faith and smarts to know that if anyone was going to save him or could save him, it would be Jesus. And what happened? Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of Peter. Peter was looking at the eternal Savior, but also thinking both immediately and eternally. This is an example of some very fortunate people who had a, a chance to be directly saved by the Savior. So it's an example of man or of a person being saved by Christ directly, asking Christ directly for help. Next example I want to look at comes from the book of Acts, verses 16, uh, chapter 16, verses 22 to 28. This is something that, uh, that I always liked reading through because it, it always blew my mind. At this point in time, Paul and Cyrus had been thrashed. The crowd beat the snot out of them. They couldn't be more downtrodden. The people didn't want them there. The authorities didn't want them there. And not only were they like just thrown in jail, it says they were thrown into the inner, the inner prison. This is like the deepest, darkest dungeon they can find. Let's beat these guys to a pulp and then throw them in the blackest of black so that we never see them again. I can't imagine a situation where one would be both more scared and more downtrodden. They had, they had no real sure idea of their faith, or sorry, of their fate, except they did know one thing. They had God on their side. So what did they do? These two dudes started praying and singing hymns. And the text says that the other prisoners were hearing this. They all heard these guys praying. So they must have been pretty loud. They were, they were bold about it. They were in the deepest, deepest darkest depths of this dungeon. And the other prisoners in the rest of the prison, it seems, were listening to these guys 
singing praises to God and to Christ. You can imagine it, like this is a bit of an echoey room, but imagine the echoey chambers of a stone prison and just hearing faint psalms being sung because this is the New Testament period. So they would have known the psalms. especially. So they would have been singing psalms. They probably would have, they might have even sung Psalm 121. And here's what happened. Verses 22 to 25 to 26 say, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened. And everyone's chains were fastened. And by the way, something I forgot to mention, these guys weren't just thrown into the dungeon their feet were put in stocks. So not only were they put in the, deeps, the depths of the black of the deep, they couldn't even move while they were in there. They, they would have been chained to a wall and chained in wooden stocks and probably standing there like this or chained up against a wall like this. So it was a bad, bad situation for them. And this earthquake happened, and you can just imagine the iron, and it would have likely been iron slats, not iron bars. And the hinges on these iron slat doors blowing right open and just falling apart and the building rocking and shaking and going crooked just enough so that the doors could just fall off and all of their chains blew right off. It gets even better. Their faith, their praise, their singing hymns worked to glorify God. Verses 29 and 30 tell us that the jailer, the very guy who threw them in there to begin with, the guy who locked them up, fell down and asked what he must do to be saved. There's that word again, saved. He saw that Paul and Silas were saved and that they must have been saved by this amazing, awesome, awesome powerful, and loving God. And it was clear Anyone who, any God who can do that, that's a God I want to, that's a God I want to know. That's a God I want on my side. Thinking from the jailer's side, he would have been a Greek or a Roman likely by descent. And they had a pantheon. They had multiple gods. But the big difference is none of those gods, if you understand Greek history, none of those gods were really creator gods. They all had power and they all had different things that they did. But none of them did stuff like this. If you look through the historical text, the foundational text of what scholars think are, are, are Greco-Roman history, you don't see a lot of this kind of stuff happening. You don't see, I'm praying to God and suddenly the building blows up and I'm free. That's a different kind of God altogether. You can only imagine that jailer seeing and experiencing something and feeling the power that he's never felt before. So not only was Paul and Silas's faith directed at God because they knew that he was their savior, that faith helped them to do something that we often talk about in our, in our morning prayers here. We often talk about it helped them to shine what it means to be faithful, to shine what it means to look to God as the Savior. It glorified God. So this is an example of a man through prayer seeking help from the Father in Christ's name. I want to look at another example. 
Luke 22, 39 to 44. Jesus praying to the Father. Very, very famous part of the passion story. And this is probably the greatest example of them all. In his darkest hour, and it was bad, and we know this because the text in verse 44 tells us that Jesus was absolutely crushed. He was in agony to the degree, to the degree that his sweat became like drops of blood. This was a guy who was in such emotional turmoil. This was before he was taken and before he was beaten. This was, this was just a guy who knew where he was going. He knew what his fate was. If we think of the person of, of Christ, the person of Jesus, the human side of Jesus, he knew that no matter what he did, it was over for him. He knew that the suffering that he was to endure was his unchangeable destiny. Indeed, he knew it was his very purpose. And what did he do? The text tells us that he was praying fervently. He was turning to God. How humble do you have to be to be the Messiah, to be the King of Kings, and still turn to God? To be the seat of power and still turn to power. If that's not an example for us, I can't think of one that is. This guy knows full well that there's nothing he can do to change his plan, his destiny. He knows that this is what the Father has set up for him, and that is it. And yet still, he turns to God. And clearly he's comforted because by the time he finishes his prayers, he's getting up and he goes to the, excuse me, the apostles. And he says, what are you doing? Let's get up and go. All is good. This is a guy who knows he's going to die. He prays. He's in agony. And the Father comforts him. All the way to the cross. All the way to his last breath. The Father brings him peace. He turns to the Lord. The Lord turns to the Lord. I can't remember which section of Scripture it was, but I believe it was one of the Psalms as well where it says, The Lord said to my Lord. And this was David speaking. And commentators believe that it was David looking forward to the, the ultimate king, the Lord speaking to the Lord the Lord. And this is an example of the ultimate king speaking to the Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. I can't even imagine how Jesus would have prayed that. Like, how do you, he's talking to himself and his dad at the same time. But it just speaks to ultimate humility and, a, and an ultimate degree of suffering and agony. And yet the Savior himself is saved by the Father. I want us to really take that to heart. The Savior turns to God for help. The Savior is doing exactly what the psalmist says. I look to the hills, and where shall my help? And from where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Jesus knew that. And Jesus turned to the Lord 
in his darkest hour when he needed help. So here's a bit of a conclusion here. Psalm 121 is clearly more than just a pilgrim's prayer. We don't have just a song that was sung for encouragement and for comfort. What we really have in Psalm 121 is an all-encompassing theology and Christology which gives us every good reason to turn to our Savior when we need help. And it's a Christology, because don't forget, God is the Savior, and without even knowing it, the psalmist was thinking about the Savior in the immediate sense and in the eternal sense, meaning he didn't even realize it, but he was thinking about Christ. Life is a journey, and this psalm is a is a journeyer's psalm. It's a sojourner's psalm. But it's also a window into who we should turn to in our deepest, darkest hour and why we should turn to him. What kind of God we have that it that what kind of God it is that we have that we can turn to. And all within eight short verses. I bet you never thought that that meant all of that. Let's say a quick prayer as we close. Father, we pray that you drive us to you both in good times and especially in times of need. We ask you, Lord, to help us, to help each and every one of us internalize the question, from where shall my help come? And we ask, Father, that we be encouraged by Psalm 121, by all of the examples that you give us in Scripture, and by the many, many testimonies that we have heard of your saving grace acting in the world. And we ask you that you encourage us this way so that we may answer that question with the confession that my help comes from the Lord. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.